this guy told me, it sucks for him. He's always stereotyped as a terrorist, you know. Whenever he travels, people assume he's a terrorist. And that does suck, but this is America. Every ethnic group has a stereotype that they've had to overcome at some point in their history. I mean, I'm half Colombian and half Spanish. I don't get upset every time people assume that I'm a bullfighter. I don't. I just deal with it. It's my little cross to bear. I can't be seen with a sword or a cape, you know. You don't think I'd love to wear my skin-tight pink capri pants with the bedazzling on them? You know, without here, look at that bullfighter. I told you they was all bullfighters. And in New York, you know, they, they, they have signs everywhere in the subways that watch out for anything out of the ordinary. Watch out for suspicious activities. If you see something, say something. That's their, that's their way of defending us. If you see something, say something. First of all, uh, in New York City, have you been in New York City? What, what doesn't look like suspicious activity? You would have to spend your whole day tackling people and apologizing. Oh, sorry, sorry about that. You, you look vaguely foreign, moved kind of quick. Can't be too careful these days. You know, look like you might have had a bomb. Good luck with that baby. I hope it works out for you. Can't be too careful. And then they put terrorism experts on CNN with their doomsday scenarios of what might happen. And you get the sense that they're coming up with ideas that the terrorists haven't thought of themselves. They're like, you know, Wolf, very few people know this, but there's actually an incredibly important atomic substation located right in Ocala, Florida. Now, it wouldn't be hard for them to find. I'll show you right here on the map exactly where it is. All it would take is a very small explosive charge placed in this exact spot right here. Even a firecracker would do it, Wolf, or a bottle rocket, or even an Egg McMuffin, if they were to smear an Egg McMuffin right on this spot right here. The entire eastern seaboard would go down. There's, there's only one security guard there. His name is Bob, and he's a bit of a boozer, so just imagine how easy it would be for them to get in there. It's frightening, really. Well, this is not a comedy show, but welcome to Voices of Experience, and uh, just wanted to welcome in the crowd today, <laughs> all the thousands and millions listening, I'm sure, Absolutely. with a little comedy there. Um, I like that. I like kicking it off that way. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, this Greg Giraldo, that's his name, and uh, that's what I thought when I heard it, and uh, it's like, let's not take ourselves too seriously all the time. That would be my main message kicking off this yeah. show today. Yeah. Sometimes just laugh at ourselves, and you certainly could do that. One of the things that he did mention, and I had an experience with this, and uh, it was somebody who was on a Sunday morning talk show, and um, Newt Gingrich, okay? And he was uh, talking about potential terrorist attacks, and had a very similar experience, seriously, because on the show he was saying, well, if a terrorist wanted to, you know, hit a waterfront, they'd want to hit the Seattle waterfront because that's unprotected. And they can get in from the coast really easily and come down Puget Sound. Right. And I'm going, I'm living in West Seattle about, you know, 500 yards or as a crow flies mm -hmm. above Terminal 5 in West Seattle. I'm going, okay, Newt, enough. <laughs> I swear to God, it was like it, about four or five minutes later. Yeah, as I said... Seattle would be the prime target, and we need to do this. Newt, enough, please. <laughs> you know, point us out. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I was saying that is exactly why I heard that, and I just laughed, but I had a very similar serious experience of 
uh, someone who did that. So anyhow, well, how are you today? I'm doing great. I just all wound up. All <laughs> you of are sudden. all fired up. I'm looking outside, and all that smoke. It's so bad. The smoke, and I'm sure people know this in Seattle as well. You can smell it inside the building. It yeah. gets into the filters and down through the AC and all that stuff. It's yeah. wild. It smells like someone's having a campfire out in the sales area. You know? Yeah. Wow. You mean you're saying the uh, inside what, north part of the building? Yeah, just the north. I, part of the okay, I, and I, as I look out the windows here, it's, nope. it looks like fog, but it's crazy. Yeah, we commented on this last week in the show because it had come in, but I could see Seattle. I can't even see the other side of Factoria right now. No, no. Has it bugged you, the smoke? Is it? Uh, yeah, when I go outside, but I'm doing that uh, very infrequently now. I'm just mm-hmm. staying indoors. But, yeah, it bothers me. Uh, but today's the worst I've seen it. Yeah, same here. So wow. hopefully we do have rain coming. That's right. And that's on Friday. And I've never heard or seen or talked to people around this area who are more excited <laughs> to have rain coming. Yeah, talk to me in two months, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> gotta be well, careful. I'll take the fires where <laughs> where's I am. Where's the where's the where's the sunshine? <laughs> hey, well, you've got a great show on today. Uh, I love the interviews you have lined up. Well, how about you? You had a I great have a good one too. with uh, Paul Sylvie. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Paul Sylvie, King Five, uh, he's sportscaster there and a sports anchor, and does several shows there. But we're going to talk about some of the local sports teams and. Talk about how he got to where he's at. You know, in radio, I hear that from a lot of people, particularly young people up and coming. They're like, I've always wanted to do sports broadcasting or play-by-play. Play-by-play, in particular, for me, seems super difficult. Um, In sports, you better know your game, so to speak. Because people will call you out, I imagine, it around every – everybody has an opinion, right? Sure. I think that would be difficult. I I agree. It It is very difficult. And you said that – Paul Sylvie has been at King for 35 years. Yeah, it's uh, 30 years plus, uh, and uh, he just celebrated an anniversary there. So congratulations. I mean, anything, any job, that's wonderful. Media is a tough, very competitive business, and uh, to be able to do that in in this market is amazing. Yeah, and they do it every night and do a great job. And I'm a big fan of his. I really think he does an outstanding job night after night. Um, I'm going to be visiting, well, not today. I had an interview with uh, Emmett Watson about 20 years ago. And in the last several uh, segments of Voices of Experience, I've been playing some of those interviews I had right here in Kixie in the late 90s. And uh, Emmett Watson was one of them. And I'm sure many of the people out there listening to this show have heard his name. But for those who have not, he was a columnist uh, in Seattle. He worked for the uh, Seattle Post Intelligencer. Mm-hmm. Then at the end of his career, he switched over to the Seattle Times. I would just have to say that uh, the best way to describe him was he was a character, individual. And um, you never knew when you, let's say, uh, read the paper and what he was writing, is he serious or is he putting us on? I think always (laughs) a little bit of both. He had fun with us, and he led a group for many years called Lesser Seattle, and basically, that organization didn't want Seattle to grow. And they kept saying, you know, we, let's keep it to ourselves in the Northwest. We don't want this urban development growth. But from this interview I had with him in 1998 in his um, studio apartment on Alki, walked in there and, and talked to him for a couple hours, he gave a really thoughtful interview in the sense that he's kind of kidding. He really thought some things that were happening in Seattle at the time 
with Microsoft and the development we had were quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. So that was an interesting um, interview I had with him again in the late 1990s. A little more history today, voices in history. I have a lot of little tidbits, but one of them is about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Sixty years ago this week, we were right in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, certainly what we're going through with Ukraine and the, the discussion of that again. There really has not been any discussion about that possibility until uh, now, mm -hmm. from 60 years ago, but it was a pretty terrifying time. But I wanted to uh, mention some little uh, things that occurred around this date, actually, because it lasted 13 days. But uh, Seattle had a little bit of backdrop here, too, in, in that. So, um, Well, I always feel smarter that. after Voices of History, Voices in History. Well, so do I. I look it up and I have a lot of fun <laughs> field days and things I, I absolutely had no idea. It's, it's been a nice little run there. I, I enjoy the feature myself. Um, and another feature I'm doing today would be an interview with um, a Howard Yaris, and he's an author, and he wrote a book, Understandable Economics. And I tell you, I'm not very good at economics. That's why I lunched at this opportunity. He does explain things that I had some questions. He clarified some things for me. So uh, he'll be coming up uh, actually pretty quick into the show. The next guest coming up in, in just a few moments. Again, uh, you're with Eric Crema. My name's Paul Casey, and uh, we're hosting this show for you today, as we always do each Wednesday at 3 p.m. right here on Kixie. And I've been saying this is also on KKNW, AM 1150. I've been leaving them out, actually. Yeah. And uh, anyhow, and then um, we uh, have a phone number that if there's anything you want to call in about, it's 425-653-1166. Just give us your comments. We'll try to get them on the air today. If we don't, we'll get it on next week. Any comments that you have, that's 425-653-1166. So, Understanding Economics with Howard Yaris, coming up next. The topic for today, understandable economics. That got my interest. I do not understand economics. And, for example... Sometimes I will get up in the morning and I'll hear the jobs report is out, it's not looking good, it's down, and then all of a sudden the market is up. And then the opposite happens. Oh, the unemployment rate dropped. There is more hiring, and then the market goes down. So it's always, to me, perplexing. And that's why I was attracted to this interview with um, Howard Yaris. He's an economist, a New York University professor, attorney, businessman and activist who enjoys explaining complex issues, and that's why I have him here. So let's just get started. First of all, I want to talk about deficits, and I've heard about deficits my entire life. It's probably the first thing as a child I remember discussions about. And one thing that I have a takeaway from is that when the Democrats were in office, deficits were absolutely destroying the country based on what Republicans would say. Then Republicans would get into office and the deficits would go up again and they would add to the deficit or do their deficit spending, but they had different priorities, okay? So I may be showing a little bit of prejudice there. And uh, my question is actually this, do deficits matter? Absolutely. Deficits 
are a sign it, you could analogize to an individual person that the government is living beyond its budget. So yes, they matter. I just want to put forth one fact. In the last 30 years, the deficits under Republicans have been much more, uh, much, much larger than under Democrats. Okay, that was my prejudice. So the rhetoric doesn't match up with the facts. Okay, that's exactly it. My, that was my impression. And Okay, but please continue. Yeah. So the deficit is when the government does not tax or borrow to fund its spending. The government raises money in two ways. It either taxes money from, away from people or borrows money. And any time the taxing and borrowing is not sufficient, they run a deficit. When um, Bill Clinton was in office, there were a couple of years when the government was running a surplus which was very unusual. But other than that, the government typically runs massive deficits. I think the deficit this year is going to be just under a trillion dollars. Under Trump in the last couple of years, it was uh, over $2 trillion. Wow. Okay. So that's very sobering there. But they do matter, is what you're saying. And how, why do they matter then? I think Absolutely. you answered think some about of it. it. When the, oh, <laughs> that's a great question. Why does it matter? Well, when the government runs a deficit, they have to take money away from, from people. The, the money has to come from somewhere. So the government increases its spending, and the private sector and consumers decrease their spending. So there's a certain amount of goods and services in the economy. When the government spends more than it's taking in, it means that everyone else spends l- less than they otherwise would. Okay. Let me ask another question a different way then. When you have deficits like you just mentioned, I don't understand what a trillion dollars is or two trillion. And that's part of the problem. I agree. That's why I love your book. Yeah. And the reason I ask that question is like, for example, is it bad if it's one trillion or two trillion or we get up to 10 trillion? Then we really have to worry. It just seems to me that we're always talking about this, but it goes on and on and on. But the world still is spinning and and we're still going to work every day and and, and it's functioning. And again, it's like crying wolf or something sometimes. That's that's where I'm trying to drive at. Well, let's start with something that we should all take as a given. 10 trillion sounds a lot like 1 trillion and all of it is way too big for at least for me to get my head around and I would assume for most people to get their heads around. So what I did in Understandable Economics is I broke out these numbers on a per American basis. And per year... $1,000 $1,000 is spent for each American on interest on the debt. Now, we could debate whether that's too high or too low, but at least we can begin to have an intelligent discussion about it when we say it's $1,000 per American per year. It's a number we can get our heads around. In my humble opinion, I, I don't think $1,000 per year per American is an existential crisis, bankruptcy-inducing, nation-ending kind of number. But again, it, it at least enables us to begin having an intelligent conversation about it rather than saying the debt is tens of trillions of dollars and it seems like the sky is falling. Very interesting. See, you put that extremely well. So I can grasp some of that and I would conclude the same mm-hmm. as you. It's not the end of the world right now. So anyhow, I have so many questions for you in so limited time. I mean, I've shot some of my time right there because I'm so fascinated. I'm going to just <laughs> move on to other things here. Um, and that is economic inequality. Question that I have is that the CEOs are getting paid millions of dollars, like $40 million a year and so on, which I think is outrageous. But I guess that's, again, my opinion. But, you know, is there income inequality? Is it as great as it's ever been? Is it more than the Gilded Age? Or, again, putting it in perspective, 
you know, it's not as bad as we think it is or it is. Objectively, like I mentioned that fact about deficits under Republicans and Democrats, it is worse than it's ever been in the United States, at least. And the question is, why is that? The term I use in understandable economics is the winner take all economy. And I could explain it very simply. If you were selling shirts 50 years ago and you you were in New York and you wanted to sell them in, in Washington, in Seattle, where you are, uh, it's very complicated. You, you would have to have long, dis- long distance phone calls and it would be hard to stay in touch. Now, Jeff Bezos could sell shirts on every corner of the planet Earth um, using the cost-free platform of the Internet. The ability to gain size and to monopolize an industry has become so much easier due to, due to international connectedness um, that we have through the Internet. So we become much more of a winner-take-all economy. The people who are doing something well are basically monopolizing whole markets in a way they couldn't before uh, uh, current technology. Why is the federal income wage still like eight dollars or something seven minimum wage an hour that's why so many places like where you live and i live have a much higher local minimum wage but again there's a concern that if you raise the minimum wage too high and believe me no one can argue 725 is too high you might give employers an incentive to either outsource to foreign nations or to automate so yes the minimum wage should definitely go up but at some point you hit a, a level where you might start discouraging employment. Are unions coming back? There's some anecdotal evidence. There are stories about certain uh, Starbucks's unionizing. As a, on a national scale, the percentage of people unionized is still very low. So maybe they will, but right now uh, we've seen some talk, we've seen some interest, but we haven't really seen a significant growth in actual unionization. Okay, so people who are pro-union with what's going on with Starbucks now, it's not time to uh, celebrate and blow up the balloons and have a big party. It's still got a long ways to go. A very long ways. Do tax cuts, do they really create jobs? I remember from another era a while ago, they called it the trickle-down theory. Give tax breaks to the uh, rich and then they will create more jobs or is there any truth to that? I have a question for you. If you were running a business and you had all these investors knocking on your door to borrow money and expand your business, but you had no change in your customer base, would you would you expand your business? No. Whereas if you had all these new customers demanding your goods and you couldn't keep up, then you would want to expand your business to make more profit. That's exactly the issue with giving tax cuts to the wealthy. Wealthy people tend to save their money and invest it. And so it's not going to result in new jobs. What results in new jobs? New customers. New customers demand more products from a business. And so the business has to expand to meet that additional demand. So the bottom line is when you give tax cuts to the wealthy, don't result in new jobs. They just result in more money for the wealthy. Tax cuts or, or subsidies to the middle class and, and lower income people what do they do with that money? They go out and spend it. And what happens when they spend, spend it? Businesses boom. They have to hire more people. They have to find new workers. They expand. So that's, that's a myth that giving tax cuts to the wealthy creates more jobs. It's something that's disproven 
simply by using common sense, something I advocate very strongly for in the book. Well, that's exactly what you do in the book, and I have perused it, and you do that. You have answered so many questions about that, and that would lead me to my next question is, why is economics such a mystery? Is this intentional, or is it just overwhelming, or people can't communicate it like you, like you are the great communicator? (laughs) I don't think I'm the great communicator. It's a mystery to me why it's a mystery. I went to high school in New York City where I was required to take trigonometry, but not required to take economics. To me, even at the time, and I have a lot of respect for math. I was a math major in college. That seemed odd, to say the least. Why is it that way? I think people are sometimes intimidated by economics. They think there's a lot of formula, a lot of jargon, a lot of technical material. Again, it's not like physics or or biology. It's not something that you need all of this technical knowledge and have to apply it in a very specific way. It's more like psychology. It's a social science. You can look at the world and figure out, try to figure out what's going on. There's some foundational knowledge you need to know, and I hope Understandable Economics provides that. But most of it could come from your merely observing the world and trying to figure out what's, what's going on there. You know, another uh, thing that I wanted to observe uh, and, and get your reaction on the stock market. To me, it's like going to Las Vegas. It's like a crapshoot. I don't understand it when uh, I've done pretty well with it because I'm conservative. I'm naturally a conservative person. I spread out my bets. You know, I'm I'd be the guy in the blackjack table who would put a dollar down on everybody's bet and I'll win a few. That's kind of the way I look at uh, investing in stocks. Well, there are all sorts of reasons why the stock market goes up and down on a particular day. But I just want to say something very fundamental. Stock market is the exact opposite of Las Vegas. In the long run, everyone loses in Las Vegas. In the long run, everyone wins in the stock market. Why is that? Because the casino has to pay their employees. They have to pay for whatever they're buying. Whereas the stock market is based upon corporate profitability. And if corporations continue to grow and profit, stocks will continue to grow up. So there's a fundamental difference. Long run, you make money in the stock market. Long run, you lose money gambling. Thank you for clarifying that. I feel much better now. I just want to say one last thing. As John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist, said, in the long run, we're all dead. So every day, it could cause a bit of anxiety, but just keep your eyes on the long run. Very good point. My thanks to Howard Yaris. If you're interested in his book called Understandable Economics, because understanding our economy is easier than you think and more important than you know, all you need to do is Google Understandable Economics. And again, the author is Howard Yaris, and that is spelled Y-A-R-U-S-S. When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. 
Welcome back. This is Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and we have two Erics here, Eric Crema and Eric Ryder, working the boards again. And um, we're moving on to our Voices in History segment now for October 2022. And we'll cover this week. Mm-hmm. Today is October 19th. I have a few Voices in History from yesterday and a couple for uh, a couple days from now. So let's just get right into it. Remember this, or tell me if you don't. On October 17, 1989, a magnitude 6.9 earthquake rocks Northern California during Game 3 of the World Series between the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland Athletics at Candlestick Park. 67 people died, and more than 3,700 were injured. 37, excuse me, 3,700, I said that was injured. The uh, series resumed 10 days later. And Oakland won the World Series then. I do remember that. I distinctly remember watching the video uh, of it, uh, the scoreboard, the shaking, everybody screaming. Did that was you the, watch it live? I mean, did, was it happening? I, I did not know. It was a situation where I watched it on the news. Okay. Uh, but I had a friend down there. Wasn't that the Northridge earthquake? Was that I, the one called the Northridge earthquake? I don't know if it was or not, quite frankly. I may be wrong on that, but if it is the one I was thinking um, he was working for Boeing at the time at a contractor down there. He completely felt it and ran out of his apartment, you know, didn't know what to do. He'd My wife, Marty, was in it, too. Okay. As well, okay. yeah. Scary um, stuff. The only thing I remember is I sat down to watch the World Series game, and all of a sudden my TV screen went blank. And I thought, well, something happened to cable or something. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go out and mow the lawn, which uh, I had to do. I didn't want to do it. And I said, no, I got no excuse. <laughs> So I went out and did it, and I came back, and then I saw the fire. I go, what happened here? So I think uh, what had happened is that they were going to the game or something, and it hit at that moment. It's like It was like 5.07 p.m., if I remember that right. Wow. I mean, they were just going national. The cameras had just come on, and mm-hmm. I just turned on the TV and came back and saw that. That uh, was kind of strange there. Strange. Um, October 18, 1972, the Clean Water Act becomes law. The 1960s was marked with a lot of truly horrific revelations regarding water pollution. Mm -hmm. And um, there was that famous fire on the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland. It caught on fire. And that really, Cuyahoga River, and it really Mm -hmm. brought people's awareness up about, we better clean this thing up. So as a result of that, probably the biggest driving force, uh, the Clean Water Act, was passed. And that just came after the Environmental Protection Agency was created in 1970. Yeah, when your water's catching fire, it's time to do something. It's a little bit too far. You know, gone. I'm going to frame that one. <laughs> Eric Crema. No, and it's nice what they do, I think, with students today, and they really drive home the point of, you know, taking care of the ecology around you and a lot of field trips and things like that. I think it's a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agreed. In 1987, the stock market had the largest ever one day crash that was called Black Monday. Now, most people like me believe the biggest stock market crash occurred in 1929, but the crash of October 19th, 1987, October 19th today, but it was 1987, was larger. Wow. I didn't, didn't know that. No. I think there was a lot of things. We had government programs to inoculate us from that mm-hmm. uh, crash, what we didn't have. In 1929. I think that was the dot-com bust. Um, that was 
Or maybe I've got that wrong. Well, let's see. Dot com, I think, came later than that. That was like 1999, 2000. You said 87, 87, right? Yeah, that's a, bit, that's a bit early. Yeah. So um, I can't remember what the driving force was at. Do you, Eric? Uh, the other Eric. Remember? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was just a kid <laughs> at that point, so wasn't following the stock market uh, as closely as that. But uh, that would have been a great time to invest in tech stocks <laughs> back in 87. If you had done that and just held on to them, you'd be a gazillionaire now. Where were you when I needed you? Just a kid. That's no excuse. <laughs> Sorry. Um, October 18th, 1985, the first Blockbuster video store opens in Dallas, Texas. On September 23rd, 2010, the company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And the last Blockbuster store closed for good in 2014. Is that the one that was in Bend, Oregon, that you could actually go? I'd heard about that. You could go and stay in it like an Airbnb because it was the last one. Ah. Yeah, they had some. I saw it on the news. Okay. Um, But you had mentioned 87, and you'd said, Eric, invest in, you know, that would have been a great time. 88, I was a cub reporter in Bend, Oregon, and I had a chance to interview Bill Gates Uh or go to the city hall and do the city police beat. And And I thought, I went with the police beat. I thought, (laughs) ah, that'd be more fun. And who's this Bill Gates guy anyway? Right. He'll never amount to anything. Had a chance to meet him face to face. (laughs) Dang it. Good move. You'd be on NBC tonight had you done that or something else. But uh, hey, I got a few of those too. Hindsight's 2020. Yeah, it is. Right. Um, Moving on. Speaking of smoke, here's another um, tidbit from history, and Oakland, California is back in it. On October 19, 1991, a fire began in Oakland, California. It was dry then, but the winds really picked up quickly. In all, 800 buildings were on fire within an hour, and the fire finally was put out. 25 people died, and over 150 were injured, 3,000 homes destroyed, and 1,500 acres had been consumed. And I do remember that. It just blew through the Oakland Hills and was a horrible, horrible fire. And, uh, you know, look outside right now, the fires we have now, we have a lot of dry uh, yards now and brush and everything. So be very careful right now. And um, the rain's coming in Friday, and hopefully it'll come in like they say it is, but we still have a couple days before that happens. Did anything good happen <laughs> during this week because this seems like me. the greatest hits of misery <laughs> you got me on that isn't it? we're losing a lot of people right now okay well how about this is now there anything that me. starts off with a plague on there let me see yeah. <laughs> you got me eric i don't have a thing here should we just stop now People oh, are it's all good. Is there is there more stuff? Because this is always interesting. But I, yeah, you, know, you caught me on this. I think <laughs> I need to balance it more. Is what you're saying, huh? Okay, I'll do that next time. Because I have to move for something else. There is good news here. Depends on how you look at it. Yes. Because right now we are in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Now it didn't happen. Right. So there you go. There's your good news you were looking for. Silver lining. Yes, the silver lining. But, um, yeah, it was pretty uh, scary because uh, the uh, blockade had uh, occurred, had been ordered during it. But one of the things that happened was uh, with Seattle, it's in the backdrop a little bit here, is that President Kennedy was coming out to Seattle to close the World's Fair. 
I was a real young kid, and I wanted to go see him sure. because they were going to do it at the uh, Memorial Stadium in, at the Seattle Center, which still stands. And uh, I remember my dad coming and going, he caught a cold, and he's not coming to Seattle. And I went, oh, darn. Oh. So the next couple days go on, and then um, he, we find out he's addressing the nation tonight because he's going to announce about the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, and we found the missiles in Cuba, and uh, he was announcing steps that had to be taken or we're going to be annihilated, mm. essentially. So it was a tense time, but uh, it was interesting to have that kind of local type of thing because that's what he was going back to do because they had just found out that the missiles were there and they were going and they were strategizing a blockade of Cuba, which in, in and of itself is a whole other story. I'd like, I could spend a whole show sure. on this, but uh, nonetheless, uh, that's why he went back to D.C., and then the next night or two, um, you know, the whole thing was underway and the world was involved in those 13 days. And and just one more comment on that. There is a movie out, uh, well, actually it was uh, made in 2000. It's called 13 Days, and it stars uh, Bruce Greenwood and Kevin Costner. I read, read the reviews about it. I've watched it a few times. I thought it was really good, but the critics say, this is as close as the reality it got to a movie making what really happened. Mm. And it's very entertaining, but it really, I think, focuses on, you know, how close we came to annihilation. And we're still here. More amazing, when I look at it more historically, sometimes I go, when you look at all the trigger points during there, how it didn't happen is, is pretty remarkable. So, is maybe <laughs> that's... Uh, <laughs> See, the good news, we are still here. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that is good news. Way all to right. sell it, Paul. Well, all right. Exactly. <laughs> i got to pick this up, don't I? Okay. Here's something closer to home. On October 19th, 1871, Susan B. Anthony became the first woman to address the Washington Territorial Legislature. While here, she helped organize the Women Suffrage Association. There you go. Is that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Up there a little bit? Oh, and on October 17, 1915, Harry Houdini arrived in Seattle for a week-long run at a downtown theater. I never knew he came here. Hmm. And then October, didn't know this either, October 19, 1924, Babe Ruth hit three homers in an exhibition game at Dungdale Park. And that was located in Rainier Avenue, where six stadiums stood for okay. how many years? And that ballpark burned down. <laughs> But then it was <laughs> rebuilt for six stadium uh, in 1938 and closed, and they ripped it down, I think, in 1977, and that's where the Rainiers played. But anyhow, I never knew Bay Ruth came to Seattle because we didn't have any, cool. any baseball there. All right, so there we go. We'll leave on that note. How's that sound for Voices in History? Sounds <laughs> good. Okay. Your interview is coming up with Paul Sylvie. That sounds right. Uh, let's go right to it. We're going to talk with Paul Silvey, King 5, uh, sports reporter and anchor. Excited for this. Hope you like it. On today's Spotlight on Success, I'm speaking with Paul Silvey, sports anchor for King 5 News. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, and thanks so much for joining us today. I know you're super busy. We're sort of coming at the end, of course, of the Mariners' run, and now Kraken's going. Of course, the Hawks are going. So you're always busy, and it seems like uh, your career and life quite a bit all revolves around sports. 
Yeah, it really does. It has for 35 years now. And uh, I just got an email today from from uh, our King people that said I'm celebrating my 30th anniversary here. So I get a catalog and I get to pick out some cool stuff. So hey, all actually, right. <laughs> so it's a big day for me. That's all right. Is it going to be like that commercial where it's a vest like you have and you put it on, doesn't fit? Or Yeah. Actually, <laughs> I love that spot. For my- well, for, the, for my 25th anniversary, I picked out a telescope and uh, pretty much thought I was going to be looking at stars on my deck, and that, that really didn't work out. wasn't the quality I thought it might be. <laughs> right. One of those deals. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you, you've, you've brought a lot of value to my life and other sports fans life as you uh, as we know you from King 5 News and all your projects um for those who aren't familiar maybe haven't seen you for a while can you give us an update of you know where you're at right now there at the station and some of the cool projects you're involved in well outside of the newscasts we um we put 11 and a half hours of news on every day and we have you know most of the time I'm in the 5 and the 7 and the 9 and the 10 and the 11 um and the uh you know, that, that's kind of just my regular deal, the black and white of it, nuts and bolts. But um, what I do uh, in, in addition to the sports cast is I'll host the fifth quarter, which I've been doing now for, gosh, since the, uh, the Mike Holmgren days. So, I mean, you know, wow. good 13 years, 14 years. That's the show that airs on Sunday night after Sunday night football, and it's all about the Seahawks. Yep. So we travel with the Seahawks, and, um, which has always been cool. You get to see all these different stadiums, and we do the show right there on the field. Um, so that's, that's been, I love the NFL and, uh, love football. So that's always, that's kind of my lifeblood here. That's what keeps me pumped up and going. So, um, so that's, but that's, that's the big part of it right there. So the Kraken are in their second season of, of their uh, run here. Uh, can you give some thoughts as we start this season, what, what your thoughts are for their chances this year? Well, I think they, they, kind of had their hands tied when they started last season as, you know, just their inaugural season. Uh, they didn't quite know what they needed. Um, they just took, you know, a, a flyer on a few players mm-hmm. and thought they drafted pretty well. But now they're starting, you're starting to see where they plug some guys in. They, they went in the off season, they picked up a couple of defensemen, they picked up guys they needed um, and better, uh, better guys in specialty situations. So I think we're seeing a better team, even though they're off to a slow start. Uh, I think they they filled some needs in the offseason. It's going to be a real challenge, though, because if they don't show some improvement in the second half of the season or even just gradually as the season goes on, uh, you might see some immediate changes there. Because as you know, in professional sports, it's all about win now. And uh, I don't know how patient ownership and the organization will be if these guys don't show improvement by the end of this season. It was interesting to see the Mariners this year because you, you just like you say, it's all about sort of this immediate gratification. But still, there's those embers from those fans who haven't seen, uh, you know, a great season for a while. And those that are brand new to it, because, wow, at the end of that run with the Mariners, stadiums packed, people, they already have the idea, OK, I'm going to put a shoe on my head. We got we, they've, they've got a chance, their own chance and stuff like this. Brand new. So it's it's really interesting to see that rekindle, too. Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, it's funny because we mentioned uh, that I've been here for 30 years and and these younger reporters that are coming in now and younger producers and writers, they're all experiencing this for the first time. And, uh, you know, last time around, they were all just uh, much younger and uh, weren't aware of it. So it's cool to see that renewed excitement 
Um, and and really, I'm very uh, impressed with Jerry Depoto and the fact that he's done almost a masterful job of rebuilding this team over the last few years. And it's been great. You know, he's offloaded a lot of dead money. Um, he's brought in some young talent and he has them under contract for a while. So he doesn't have to worry about paying them big dough, even though Julio got his big contract. And that is so worth it. Because if they can build this team around that young superstar for the next 10, 15 years, um, this is going to be a fun franchise to watch. I can't say enough good things about Poto and the job he's done uh, over the last few years and getting the Mariners to this point. That's great. That's that's wonderful. What do you think about some of the changes that certainly have happened on the minor league end of uh, baseball, but now sort of infiltrating even the majors to speed the games up and things like that? I think it's a good idea. I think that, you know, some of the pitchers are a little bit too deliberate when they're on the mound, and some of them like to work a lot faster. I like the idea of um, of keeping the game moving. Gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm not, even though we had the 18-inning game, I'm still not a fan of of putting the, the the player at second base because basically you're a professional athlete. If you put a guy at second base with no out, you should be able to get him home and they should, it could take, you know, just as long because everybody's scoring mm. a run in every extra inning. But so I'm not a fan. I'd like to see them get back to let's just play extra innings the way they're supposed to be played, even though it could go 18 innings. That's part of the excitement. Um, they don't, you don't have to worry about the ball players going to bed and, and getting some sleep. They can they can wait till the 11, 12th, or 13th inning if it t- that's what it takes to win a ball game. So as far as the changes go, I like the fact that they want to speed things up. I don't like the the ghost runner at second base. Um, and yeah, so that's it. Well, you know, when you look at careers in media, particularly sports media, uh, you don't normally start out in large markets like Seattle. I imagine the same is true for your career. You started out in smaller markets or maybe college and worked your way up. Oh, yeah. I mean, I worked, you know, in Flint, Michigan for four years because uh, I grew up in Michigan. And then I was fortunate because when I worked in uh, the ABC affiliate there for four years, um, uh, I sent tapes out to uh, three other markets and Seattle called. So I was lucky that I didn't have to meander through a lot of different small areas. I was able to have a good hair day and Seattle called and uh, and and it went well. So that's nice. that's kind of you know, it was a two-stop thing. I like that. You had a good air day. <laughs> well, you know, so they there's... throw your tape in. They, even, they like it or they don't. <laughs> Nowadays, it's links and YouTube. But back then, we had to wrap up our tapes in foil and make them look real fancy so they would open them up and take a look at us. Well, that's how I am on radio. You know, don't really have to have a good air day any day. Um, if not for sports reporting, what would you have done with your career? What would what were some other interests I would have, have loved about? to – I've, I've, I've always been a huge soccer fan, Eric, and I played soccer throughout high school and uh, I would have coached soccer and taught in high school, um, just mm. like my coach did. Um, that's what I would have done. I would have been a teacher and a coach and uh, I think I would have really enjoyed it, really. And I would love to go out and coach young people right now in this business because I love to I love to interact with them and and, um, and give them some whatever wisdom I can give them and some advice. So. I think I would have made a pretty good teacher and a pretty good coach back in my younger days. Well, there's still plenty of time for that too, you know, maybe in <laughs> retirement or something like that, you know, do a maybe. little, what they call a side hustle, right? I guess it can't be a, that can't be a school teacher. No, that doesn't work right. Uh, you talk about soccer. So our daughter uh, from five on through college was in soccer, select soccer and that sort of thing. I think it was one of the best things we ever did was get her involved in soccer. I think for particularly young kids playing any sport, but in particular for us, it was soccer. Um, it just 
helps mold them in so many ways you as even a parent can't do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, just playing organized sports and being involved with your friends and having responsibilities of, of going to practice, going to games, not letting your team down because you don't feel like going to the game that day. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different things, not only in soccer, but in sports in general that teach us about life and uh, responsibilities. And so I think playing sports is, uh, is really important. And if not just sports, if you don't want to play sports, I think just being involved in an organization at that, at that age is, is really uh, important. Now, I know you played fo- football, soccer, and hockey. Uh, right. Do you keep up on any of that in terms of playing? Do you, do you play in any other, uh, I don't like to use the word senior leagues, but, you know, uh, more established leagues. Yeah, you can just say adult league. Adult league. Thank you. I was looking for the right. <laughs> senior league. <laughs> That's right. I'm, I might be able to do something in a senior league right now. But, no, you know what, Eric, I tried it. I played some adult soccer when I, uh, when I first, yeah, I guess when – I don't know, 10 years ago, I gave it a shot. I didn't like it. Uh, I was too competitive. And, um, and, and I thought, and then the people I was playing against were really competitive and it took a lot of the fun out of it. I just wanted to go out there and get some exercise. And I find it hard that I'm even saying that because I was very competitive as a younger person, but um, I tried soccer, uh, pulled a bunch of muscles and said, you know what? I think I'm out of here. My body does not want to do what my mind wants it to do. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, You've got a great gig where you're at now, King Five News. You're doing wonderful. Uh, you're you're sort of a an established uh, a person here on the local media scene, and I look forward to seeing you each and every time you're on the air. So, congratulations on your success, past and present, and keep it up. Thanks a lot, Eric. I appreciate it. I, I love my job. I, I chose a good career, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. You got it. And thank you, Paul, for your time today. We look for you on King 5 Sports as we continue with the Hawk seasons, of course, and the Kraken season just getting started. Um, and so I do want to say to those, as we sign off, uh, as listeners of Spotlight on Success, be sure to tune in next week for another interesting conversation. Best to you all. There's a number of those, Ed Carlson, Jim Ellis, Med Skinner, several others who were guiding spirits in the progress of Seattle. Jim Ellis had a great deal to do with cleaning up Lake Washington, and he put me behind the forward thrust bond issue. Ned Skinner was uh, head of a uh, economic development group. It was a bit of a slump here after the World's Fair, and also at Boeing, you know, when Boeing had that recession in 69, and he went out and did a lot to diversify. He was quite a guy, Eddie Carlson. Eddie was a mover and shaker. Here was a guy who was got to the top at Western International Hotels, but Eddie got into this whole business of uh, community activism, and uh, he he just did a lot of things. He organized people. In fact, he was a guiding spirit of the World's Fair. I don't see any of them around now, but I think the whole culture and climate has changed now. We're all into these instant millionaires and billionaires, and there's some some of them are doing some good. But you don't have that kind of leadership thing of somebody out there forward organizing. And, and that may come later, but it's kind of a different climate now. Now, do you think you've lost the battle of lesser Seattle? I think that was a losing uh, uh, cause going in. And I've had a lot of fun with it and it irritated a lot of Californians. And logically, you can't win that one. What era of Seattle is your favorite? Well, right now. I like it yeah, right now. Notwithstanding, we're going to... 
every city, every era has its problems, and we've got problems on low-income housing and, and streets and sewers, everything. But uh, what the projection now that something like 2010, I believe it is, that more 800,000 more people in King County, and that's going to jack the rents up. It's going to make all kinds of problems. But we'll, we'll make it. We'll do it. But it's a far more interesting city now. My heavens. Every time you turn around, there's a new era restaurant opening, and there's a uh, Major League Baseball, Major League Football, Major League Basketball. There's everything to do here. And so you have everything going here. There's action. There's fun. There's all of that. It's good. It's, there's a lot of substance in the city. For most of this century, Seattle was known as really a little fishing village to the north. What do you think turned that around? I've always thought that the real point of the turnaround was back in 1955 when Boeing developed the 707 and took us into the jet age. One of my good friends was Tex Johnston, who was the uh, test pilot on a lot of the early Boeing jets. And Tex rolled that mother over the, over the lake out there. And he got in trouble for that. And they said, what do, you, what do we think you were doing? He said, I was selling your airplane. And there were all the heads of airlines that seen this, and, and, and that's when Boeing began to come on, and that's when the whole region began to turn around. Legend has that you were quite a baseball player. Is that true? Uh, I was signed out of the UW. I played there at the UW for three years. And, but I was not a real prospect. Uh, but I hung on for a few weeks here and there and that kind of stuff. But no, I was not a good player. And then when did you transition into the writing profession? Well, the reason I got into writing is it was during the war. You had to, you had to get approval to work elsewhere than, say, the shipyards or Boeing. It was during the war. Well, I, uh, I was hard of hearing, and I was 4F, and I worked in the shipyards. And toward the end of the war, I began to, hey, wait a minute, I better look around here. So I looked out, and I got a job at the old Seattle Star. And this was shortly after the Rainiers let me go and fired me. And so they thought it would be a good idea to have an ex-Rainier player actually covering the team. And so they, so they hired me on space rates. And I would get $26 one week, $28 the next week. And, and I covered the Rainiers. That's how I got started. Final question, are you optimistic about Seattle's future? Yes, I, I am. I'm optimistic. Because you have Boeing with backed-up orders for heaven's knows in a long time. And then you've got Microsoft. Notwithstanding the current uh, antitrust suit, Microsoft's going to endure, and it's, it's big, and it's well-run. And the one thing about Bill Gates that I will say, he wasn't just a computer nerd. When this guy began to develop a company, he proved he could run a company. And that's the success of Microsoft. Bill Gates ran that company and did it right. I think I could be optimistic. Well, again, that was the late, great Emmett Watson. What a character. Um, we were just talking about some World's Fair stories during that interview with Emmett, and he was certainly... Chagrined at that because he felt that uh, it really made Seattle famous and <laughs> we would be more visible to the world after that, which he was right. But then, as you heard the interview, he was uh, very pro Seattle and he certainly talked well about Microsoft and some of the other things that um, uh, were going on at the time. But uh, great. He was such a treasure for the city. 
So I wanted to talk about some, uh, let's say, self-employment matters. What do you think? Do you want to do that? Sounds great. Let's do it. Unfortunately, we're a little time crunched, but we will make it happen high speed. Okay. Well, let's. Uh, I would like to talk about. I really like to pose to people and what they're thinking about going into business for themselves, about what they should consider. Once the doors are open, I say good luck mm-hmm. and make it happen. But these are the things you should consider before you even open up your business. Beautiful. And that's the focus. That was the book I wrote, Is Self-Employment for You? That's the main focus of the book. If you finish the book and go, I can do this, I win. I figure I, I did what I was supposed to do. If you finish the book and say, ah, this isn't for me, I win again. Because for whatever reason, I've had people tell me both. I'm glad I didn't do it. I mm-hmm. was going to do it, but I'm glad I didn't do that because of such and such. One of the aspects I have what is called a self-employment quiz, and there are 20 questions on the quiz. And the higher you score in the quiz, I would submit the higher, higher your prospects for success. And one of the questions, one of the most important ones in, I believe, the questions, if you're pondering and going into business for yourself, is organization. Are you an organized person? Are you always forgetting your car keys? You don't remember things. You're forgetting certain things. You let things drag. Um, You're just not organized. Mm -hmm. Okay. And some of us are more organized than others. Nobody's 100% organized and no one is totally disorganized. There's a wide berth in between. However, the more organized you are, your higher your prospects for success. In real estate, the analogy is location, location, location. I believe when you're going into business for yourself, which now referred to as a solopreneur, I think it's organization, organization, organization. Time is your most precious commodity, and how you use it will spell the difference between, I think, success and failure. It's failure. It's a big one. That's what I'm, I'm trying to submit. So the good news is that if you're not organized and you can get better organized, you can do these things to improve in those areas, just like everything else. Another question I have is execution. You know, do you execute what you want to do? So those are the type of uh, areas that I really stress that people pay attention to. And again, solopreneurship, you're going to business for yourself. If you're not organized, get organized or don't even think about going into business.